If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for... Sustaining it for us, preserving it for us that we may have it this morning. Thank you, God, for giving us ears to hear. We ask now that you would give us hearts to understand. Father, by your Spirit at work within us and for the glory of your Son, would you take the preached word and apply it to our hearts that we might be made more and more into the image of Jesus, that we might learn how to live for him. Lord, help us in our time of need. Be with your people. Help me, your servant. Protect me from error. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God. You are my rock and my redeemer. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the Australian bush country, there grows a little plant a little plant that's known or called by the name sundew. It's the sundew plant. This little sundew is strangely beautiful. It has a, a slender stem with clusters of red, white, and pink blossoms, along with tiny, round leaves that are fringed on the edges with bright red hair-like structures. Hairs that glisten with drops of liquid as delicate as fine dew. If you're wondering, I borrowed that definition. The words I very rarely speak when it comes to flowers. In my ignorance, I was a microbiologist, not a botanist. It's a beautiful, strangely beautiful flower. But woe to the insect. Woe to the insect that dares to dance on this little plant. The flower, the blossoms are harmless, but that shiny moisture that looks like dew on each leaf is not. It's very sticky. It's a sticky substance, and it works like glue. And what it does is it imprisons unfortunate bugs. As bugs get stuck there, kind of like a, a flypaper, as bugs get stuck there, they begin to struggle to get away, right? And those vibrations that are caused, that's why we say woe to the one who dares to dance, the vibrations that are made by that bug trying to get away 
causes that leaf to curl up around the bug, to squash it and begin decomposing it so that plant can get the nutrients that it needs. In other words, the bug becomes dinner. The strangely beautiful, innocent-looking plant is in all actuality a death trap. It's a death trap. Well, sin is a lot like that sundew plant, is it not? Though it comes, sin comes in many forms, it's often disguised as something strangely beautiful, something that looks innocent, something that appears on the surface to be life-giving. That's why we're so tempted by it. That's why we're tempted by it. But when we give in to temptation, when we embrace sin, we find that sin is not any of those things that I just said at all. Instead, we find sin to be nothing more than a death trap. Sin is nothing more than an entangling snare that ultimately robs us of true life and robs us of true joy. It robs us of true purpose and it robs us of true fulfillment. And while that little bug trapped by the sundew has no voice to be heard, we, on the other hand, when we're imprisoned or caught in sin, its consequences as well, we often find ourselves crying out. And if you're like me, you find yourself crying out just as Paul does in Romans 7, 24. Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am. Oh, wretched one that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Praise God there's an answer to that question. Praise God there's an answer to that question. Paul gives the answer to that question in the very next verse, Romans 7, 25. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord the answer is Jesus. Jesus Christ, the one we talked about last week, is the true and better Adam. The one who, when faced with temptation to sin, the one who, when he's faced with the temptation, he does not give in, but he stands up to it. He stands up to it in our place, and he conquers it for us so that we might conquer it as well. That's what we're witnessing in our text this morning. The Son of God has left the glories of heaven to come, and he's come to destroy the works of the devil. He's come to liberate those who have been enslaved by sin. One of my favorite commentators on the book of Luke, Philip Ryken, says it this way, and I want to quote him directly. He says, rather than waging a secret war, are launching a sneak attack, Jesus takes the fight directly to Satan. Back at the Jordan River, heaven opened, heaven had opened, he says, to reveal Jesus as God the beloved son. Now Jesus steps right up to the gates of hell. He won't defeat Satan by deception, but in close combat on an open field of battle. I like how he says that. So look at four, one and two. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, is led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Like Matthew before him, 
Luke presents three temptations that Satan lays out before Jesus. But it's important to see that what Jesus endured was more than just these three temptations alone. Like most theologians and commentators, I I agree with them. I see the 40 days going with the participial phrase being tempted by the devil. So to say it more succinctly, Jesus is being tempted by the devil for 40 days. I think it's strengthened by the phrase at the end. When all of it had ceased, he then left him. Jesus is being tempted for 40 days. Thus, these three temptations are not the only ones that Jesus faces, but rather they are the climactic ones. They are the climactic ones. It's helpful that there are three, right? I'm a preacher, so I like it when I see three. That helps me form our points for this morning. So we'll have three points, three temptations. Be a simple outline. The first temptation is presented in verses three and four. The first temptation is verses three and four. I'm gonna call it this if you wanna write this down. The temptation to not trust God in our suffering. The temptation to not trust God in our suffering. Luke, as he's done throughout already, makes it very clear that Jesus is not facing and enduring these temptations with some kind of divine superhuman power. He's fully man and fully God, but he's not facing these temptations just in his deity. He's facing them in his humanity, in his human weakness. It's clear from the second half of verse 2 that he ate nothing during those days. In other words, Jesus fasts for 40 days. I've never done that. Have any of you done that? He fasts for 40 days. Jesus is weak. Jesus is frail. He's hungry. Glad that's added there. He's really human. He's hungry. And so Satan speaks to him, and maybe you caught this, but he speaks to him with echoes from Genesis chapter 3. There in Genesis chapter 3, you may remember that Satan tempted our first parents, Adam and Eve, by questioning what God had really said. He goes to him and says, you know, did God really say that you can't eat? Did God really say? He goes right at the word of God. And here he does the very same thing. He says, if you are the son of God. Where do you hear that? Well, remember, God had just spoken from heaven, at Jesus' baptism. And what did God say? You are my beloved son. So Satan is questioning this truth. It's almost as if he's saying, if you really are, or maybe more literally, so you say, you're the son of God. Command this stone to become bread. Command this stone to become bread. Now certainly this is a real temptation I can't go a few hours without getting hungry. I can't imagine 40 days. Jesus has the divine power to turn this stone into bread. Does he not? He does. And so Satan says, here, this is a real temptation. Jesus is really hungry. He's suffering. And his core faithfulness is being tested. Like the nation of Israel before him who were led into the wilderness for 40 years to have their faithfulness tested. So Jesus is again standing in the place of his people. Even in the midst of the great suffering, 
that he's enduring here, the question is, will he trust his father to see him through? Will Jesus trust his father to provide for his every need? Or will he be just like Israel? You may remember, they so often tried to take things into their own hands. And how did that work for them? I want you to notice that Jesus' answer is brief and biblical. He takes up what Paul will later call in Ephesians 6, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Jesus takes it up and he quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. Man shall not live by bread alone. Perhaps you know the rest of that verse as it continues into Deuteronomy 8.4. There's a part here that Jesus doesn't quote, but I want to quote the whole verse for you. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. That verse, when it was given in its original context, is given to Israel in relation to their wilderness wanderings. When God was supplying, you may remember from our time in the book of Exodus, he's supplying manna for them each and every morning, this strange bread. It's very literally translated, what is it? That's how man is translated. What is it? They're saying this, what is it? I'm going to eat this, what is it? God provided it for them each and every morning, of course, except for the Sabbath morning. They were to collect twice as much on the day before so they could rest on the Sabbath. And God gave the manna to Israel to remind them, right, to remind them that he supplies their needs. And these verses were said to them that so they needed to remember that it wasn't just the manna that was keeping them alive. It's not just the physical manna. It's what? It's God's promise to provide the manna for them every day. That's what's keeping them. That's what's the word of God, not just the bread, but the very word of God that promised to give it to them every day. So it was indeed God's word, not his word in some general sense, but God's day by day decision to fulfill his promise to sustain them by the divine. What is it to sustain them by the manna? So just like Israel, Jesus's sustenance does not depend on physical bread itself, but rather on the will of his father to provide for him. That is where Jesus is going to rest. He's resting in the will of God. It's not up to me to make my own bread. It's up to me to trust God, my father. In fact, later he'll say, that's my food to do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Satan is tempting Jesus to do what each and every one of us are prone to do. Now, if you can turn stones into bread, see me afterwards, I want to see that, okay? That's not what I mean. He's tempting him to do what all of us do, and that's to fixate on our needs. Perhaps even to elevate our needs, or we could put it this way, to put our needs solely in the driver's seat. It reminds me of a Peanuts cartoon. Lucy and Charlie Brown are standing there talking, and Lucy turns to Charlie Brown and says, Charlie Brown, why are we put here on this earth? Charlie Brown says, to make others happy. Lucy replies, 
I don't think I'm making anyone happy. Next panel. Of course, nobody is making me very happy either. Next panel. This leads her to scream at Charlie Brown. Of course, you see him flying in the air, right, when she screams. Somebody's not doing his job. This cartoon illustrates well the principle we all tend to live by. My need, whatever my need is, must have supreme place, period. Look, God certainly cares about our needs. Don't misunderstand me. He cares about our needs, and God certainly ministers to our needs. But we must resist the temptation to sin in the midst of our suffering. We must resist the temptation to sin in the midst of suffering. Simply put, and certainly contrary to our culture, certainly contrary to what you'll hear some churches like to say, simply put, sometimes it is God's will for us to suffer. Do you believe that? Sometimes it is simply God's will for us to suffer. That's one of my least favorite things to say to someone as your pastor. But I have to tell you the truth. The truth is, that's God's will too. But rather than deify our sufferings by trying to put them ahead of God himself or to take matters into our own hands like we're so prone to do, God wants us to be patient. God wants us to be faithful. He wants us to endure in the midst of them. He wants us to see that his will, not our needs, his will must have supreme place. It's okay to ask him for the bread. Certainly, Jesus teaches us to do that. Give us this day our daily bread. But it's also upon us to trust him to provide. It doesn't mean don't go work. It doesn't mean go earn it for yourself. That's not what I'm saying. Please don't misunderstand me. But even that work, even that ability to attain it is a gift from God. We trust God to provide. He wants us to follow Jesus' example here. He wants us to trust him in our suffering. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. This brings us then to the second temptation. It's found in verses five through eight. And this temptation I'll call the temptation to not trust God in our waiting. The temptation to not trust God while we wait. Here we find Satan making a promise which he certainly would never be able to fully deliver on. That's pretty common for the enemy to make promises, overpromise and underdeliver. I mean sure he's called the god of this age. But how could his promise of earthly kingdoms and giving those earthly kingdoms to Jesus, how could it possibly compare to the kingdom that already was promised and belonged to Jesus. Promises like those found, and you can write these down and look them up later, Psalm 2.8, Daniel 7.14. Those are promises given to God's true king, the Messiah. The promise that all the nations will belong to him, all the ends of the earth, along with all dominion and all glory belong to the Messiah. So how could Satan promise to give Jesus more than what was already rightfully his. That takes a lot of gall, as I like to say. And he does it, doesn't he? He promises him anyway. He shows him in a moment. Did you catch that? 
Satan showed him in a moment. Maybe not just what was there, but maybe through all time. Shows him all of it and says, this can be yours. He attacks Jesus in his weakness. Here Jesus is in the wilderness. He's weak and he's frail, but he's on a mission. He's been given a mission from his father to redeem his people. You remember in the waters of baptism, Jesus had committed himself to a protocol. He had committed himself to a procedure. He had committed himself to stand in the sinner's place. He had committed himself to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law for them. This meant that the suffering that Jesus was even experiencing and would experience into the future, that his suffering must come before his glory. Suffering must precede glory. That's the mission Jesus is on. So Satan is tempting him to take the easy way. Take the easy way instead. To grab the glory now and bypass all the suffering. Just have it now. It can all be yours. All Jesus has to do, according to verse 7. And this is just absolutely crazy that he would say this to Jesus. Worship me. It's almost like you're reading it. Right? Like, who, does he know who he's talking to? Does he really, does he really think this is going to happen? I want you to notice how simply Jesus faces this temptation. I, know, I asked lots of questions in my study this week. I had a pile of notes about all these different things. You know, like, well, how can Satan offer that? What does he really have dominion over? What is it? But no, notice what Jesus does. He doesn't enter into a debate over Satan's claims. I mean, maybe he's just like most of his parents. We're just too tired to argue with you. But he doesn't even bother, does he? He's like, no. He doesn't draw out the implications of what Satan says. He doesn't mince his words. <laughs> I like this one too. He doesn't haggle with Satan's view of the end times. He doesn't get into a big debate about eschatology. Instead, what does Jesus do? He draws the sword of the spirit and he goes right for the jugular. Look what he says. You shall worship the Lord your God. And him only shall you serve. It's simple. No. No, I worship God and God alone. I am God. This is my word. Worship God. Him alone shall you serve. You may not have ever been promised all earthly power, but it's very tempting to seize power for yourself. It's easy for me to do it for myself. You know, Satan's still prowling around like a roaring lion, Peter tells us. He's seeking to devour those whom he can. And he's still promising power. He's promising power, but it's power that pales in comparison to the power of God at work within you. It doesn't matter, though. We're still tempted, aren't we? We're still tempted to have some modicum of power, right? To bypass our own suffering, to bypass our own waiting for some type of instant gratification. You see, we're trying, if you're a follower of Jesus, I trust that you're trying to walk in faithfulness, and I would call it patient faithfulness with God. Satan is constantly calling on us to doubt God's goodness and to doubt God's provision. Satan wants us to question even God's timing. That's why he tempts us with all the things that we desire and I'll be careful because of the little ears in here. But whether it be love, 
whether it be wealth, whether it be status, whatever that might be, he tempts us by offering it to us, even at our very fingertips. It can be ours. You can have love and satisfaction and meaning and power right here. Just do this. Worship me. You know, you're thinking, well, my sin in doing X, how is that worshiping Satan rather than God? Well, that's what sin is. It's any want of conformity unto or transgression of God's law, which is what? That's our catechism, how it defines it. It's an active choice to say God's not enough, his way is not enough. I'm not going to worship God in this. I'm going to follow the ruler of this world. That's what sin is. But God wants us to know that what awaits us in heavenly glory and what is already ours through a living and active faith in him alone, something we're longing to wrap our arms around, right? What awaits us is better than any earthly glory, better than any earthly satisfaction, better than any earthly power. Though we often find ourselves waiting upon God and his provision, look, I stink at waiting, I'm not good at it. Just drive in the car with me. You'll figure it out. You probably already have. I'm not good at it. But God's continually, by his spirit, calling us, trust me. Trust me. Wait upon me. It's better to wait upon the Lord. Like Jesus, we must embrace the truth that his plan and the timing of his plan is most certainly best for us. That's the decision that Jesus makes here. You can't give me that because I already have the kingdom. I am the king. Well, we can't say that with him, but we can say, I'm a child of the king. You can promise me all this, Satan, but it's not enough. It's nothing. It's rubble compared to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, and living for him. I like how John Piper uses words in general, but I like how he brings this together. He says that through this we learn that we must come to truly believe that we must not only worship the Lord our God, but that worship, worship must become our most supreme source of true and lasting happiness in this life. The choice to worship God must become the source, supreme source of our true and lasting happiness. Not the things of this world, not sin, but God. Well, as we come to the third and final temptation, we see Satan changing his tactics a bit, don't we? He changes his tactic, noticing that Jesus always goes back to Scripture. So Jesus is one of those people that likes to quote Scripture. Praise God. Satan decides to try and use Scripture against Jesus. How crafty, huh? So with fiendish cunning, Satan takes Jesus to Jerusalem, sets him on the pinnacle of the temple, and dares him. Dares him to put God to the test. This temptation is what I'll call the temptation to not trust God by testing him. The temptation to not trust God by testing him. Satan challenges Jesus by quoting from a psalm Uh, A messianic psalm that speaks of God's care and love for his king, particularly his Messiah. Jesus says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself off. I'll paraphrase what 
he's saying is, the word you love to quote speaks of you and says that his angels will guard you. You notice how Satan applies this psalm? He knows the word. Your enemy knows the word. He's distorting it. The word you love to speak, that scripture you love to quote Jesus, speaks of you. His angels will guard you. They'll save you. So in a sense, he's saying, prove it, Jesus. If you really are the son of God, prove it. How much faith do you really have? Can you stand on these promises? Are you willing to take the leap of faith? Quite literally. Are you willing to throw yourself off? You can just feel the vial, can't you? The vial spewing forth from the vile one. Jesus refuses to presume upon the Lord's protection. He refuses to force his father's hand into supplying such dramatic protection as this. Jesus knows that it is not true faith that pushes God to give dramatic evidence of his care. I mean, is it really faith to go to the top of the temple, jump off and yell as you fall, I believe in Psalm 91? Is that really true faith? Is it really faith to leave this building now, go out onto the highway in oncoming traffic, speed up as fast as you can, and then close your eyes, let go, and scream, Jesus, take the wheel? Is that true faith? None of that is true biblical faith. Interesting sidebar here about this is that in one of the midrashes, the, the Jewish theologians today believe that the Messiah would actually make himself known in the temple, that he would stand at the pinnacle of the temple and declare who he was. And Satan is kind of appealing to that. So, so show yourself to everyone of who you really are. So again, Jesus is relying on God's timing. And he's not going to put God to the test. He will show himself up high. But it won't be in the temple, will it? Because he'll suffer outside the gate. And he'll hang on the cross at Calvary. He'll be lifted high and he'll draw people to himself. So Jesus rebukes Satan and he says, you should not put, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He says this because genuine faith doesn't need sensational proof of God's attention. To press for such a thing, which all of us are prone to do, to press for such a thing is testing God not trusting God, to continually press for sensational proof is testing and not trusting. I think the greater point here that we need to keep in mind is that true faith in God is not demanding that he always provide us with something spectacular. That disease runs real rampant in our culture today. Gotta have that something spectacular. Gotta have that next mountaintop experience. In fact, lots of churches speak that way and long for that. But genuine faith doesn't seek those things as some kind of proof of God's love or proof of God's care for us. Genuine faith refuses to put God to the test by how? Remaining content with the ordinary. True faith remains content with the ordinary, which is kind of funny to say because there's nothing ordinary about faith. 
If we believe that faith is given to us by God as a miracle, the Holy Spirit changes our hearts and gives us faith, that's extraordinary. But it's just not enough, is it? I need something more. I need something more. Well, God gives us more. He gives us himself in his word. He gives us himself by his spirit, and he leads us and guides us. And yes, he does bring us to mountaintops, and he does bring us to valleys, but he's the same God in both places. We're being taught here that God is for us. God's for us in both places. We don't need to test him. We need to trust him. That's what Jesus does here. Jesus refuses to put his father to the test, and he chooses to trust him right there. Just as we sang earlier, I will trust. I will trust. What happens? Verse 13 says that the devil departs from him until an opportune time. He's not done. He's not done. He's got more to do, but for now, he departs as he will always depart, a defeated foe. He's a defeated foe. Friends, from Jesus' example in these temptations, we've learned how we also can stand firm against the devil's schemes. Like Jesus, we're tempted to doubt the goodness of our Heavenly Father's care and our own suffering. We're tempted to doubt the goodness of our Father's care in our own waiting. And we're certainly tempted to doubt the goodness of our Father's care in our own day-to-day doldrums, ordinary things of life. And I'm so thankful that Jesus stood in our place, not just in the waters of baptism, but he stood in our place here in the wilderness. He's our great high priest. The author of the book of Hebrews says that he's truly able to sympathize with us in our weakness. That's what he's doing here. He has no sin rising up from within. He can't, like we do. But he's still presented with external, outward temptation to sin. And what does he do? For us, he stands strong. He withstands the onslaught of Satan. He remains faithful. And I want you to see right away the point that Luke is making, as he's been making all along, is that Jesus truly is the true and better Adam. What happened to Adam in the garden? He didn't withstand. He fell, and what did he lose? He lost paradise. Jesus regains it for us. Jesus doesn't succumb to the temptation. He remains obedient to his heavenly Father, And the obedience that we see here is the same obedience that Jesus will carry with him through his life all the way to the cross. To the cross where I said earlier, he will suffer and die in our place. He will become the perfect sacrifice for our sins. He will be the price that needed to be paid to secure our redemption. Jesus shows us here that it is truly better to trust our heavenly father than to bow our hearts to the lies and worthless promises of Satan. So I'll end where I began. Sin is strangely beautiful, but it's a death trap. It's tempting. Temptation is tempting. But hear this. Jesus is always better. Trust and faithfulness in him is always better. I know it can be hard, so take heart. Take heart as I close with this. Any measure of faith that you seek to place in God 
is nothing that you have or that you even can conjure up on your own. Faith is a gift from God. Ongoing faith is just as much a gift as saving faith. It's all a gift from God. So worship God. Let worship of him and who he is and all that he is for you in Christ Jesus be the source of your supreme happiness in this life. Amen? Amen. Would you grab your bulletins?